the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie nerds. This is Andreas. I created and help currently run Films Fatale, a film editorial review and interview website with masterclass lessons as well. And who else do I have with me? I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale as well, a world cinema column, and world cinema and the classic era are my specialties. James here. I create content. I produce release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm also one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I will be a future Films Fatale writer when that ever, you know, whenever I figure that out. I also am a holder of Dogecoin, waiting for it to go to the moon. <laughs> so-, so today's episode is about documentaries. That's it. Just plain and simple. Yeah. I propose to everybody that we just discuss a documentary that we personally enjoy because it seems like documentaries don't quite get the attention that they deserve all the time. We certainly haven't talked about them much. Yeah, we really haven't. And I know in the mainstream, it's not really... It, it just doesn't get the push that a lot of other, you know, fictional movies get. There's like a stigmatization against it where it's like these drab, boring, I think educational usually you know, sets a bad taste in people's mouths when they think of it that way. I hope to rectify all of that because my top 100 documentaries of all time is actually coming up the first Monday of June, so next month. So, Oh, that's exciting. That'll be cool. Yeah, when you proposed this, I was like, oh, this is kind of going to be a little spoilery, and I was really trying to think of like a different way to put a spin on your question, but I just couldn't. Point being, I guess before we start, I want to... Um, quickly go into the types of documentaries that there are. They're not just interview-based or educational. There's all sorts of different things like video essays, concert films, and music documentaries, and something called City Symphonies, which was especially big back in the day, which I'll get into a little bit later. Documentaries are very multifaceted, and I hope that this episode really gives them the kudos that they deserve. So James, I guess, take it away. Since you you came up with the topic, I'm sure you've got one in mind. Oh yeah, I knew it instantly what i was going to pick for this one i decided to go with what is my favorite music documentary of all time and probably one of my favorite documentaries of all time in general and that's tupac resurrection oh yeah primarily because of the way it's made it's all composed of archive material so it takes audio interviews video there's nothing new shot for it and then aside from some i don't know insert shots to kind of round out some scenes it's all just archive stuff of him and his audio interviews are narrating the entire documentary. So it's like he's telling his own story. You don't have like the director speaking. You don't have new interviews with anybody. It's strictly all archive footage from when he was actually around and the way they cut it up. It literally just kind of tells his story from, you know, from birth to when he died. And it's just it's just really amazing. I never thought I'd ever see a documentary that would kind of take that angle. Cause you know, whenever you do retrospective documentaries, it's always, you know, the people remembering them or all those VH1 cliches. Yeah. Or the, the director's trying to find out something specific, but this one is literally just, they just took everything they had of him and put it all together. And it's just a really cool kind of scrapbook of his life. And it's kind of amazing. Cause you know, aside from the controversy, you, you'd see kind of a different side that you didn't see from when he was around and, you know, the kind of persona that was kind of cultivated by the public of who he was. Yeah. That almost sounds like the, uh, the Amy documentary about Amy Winehouse, where it was literally also, yeah, just an accumulation of footage. And there wasn't, I don't believe there was like any like strict narrated voiceover or anything that was like trying to guide you in a specific direction. It just presented her as is. I haven't seen this Tupac one though. 
Well, it's crazy because the way they cut the audio of him narrating, actually, he is guiding you through the story. That's cool. So it's almost like the end of To Pimp a Butterfly, where it's like, it's his voice saying something else. Yeah, almost kind of like that. When did it come out? Uh, this was 2003. Okay, so it had been a few years since he died, and... Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah, it, it was sometime after. I think I was in middle school when it came out. But yeah, it was just something that I just struck me as so fascinating. Just, you know, this person's long gone, but they're back to tell their own story, and... Yeah, it's kind of crazy. That's really cool. And I'm guessing that didn't help with all of the conspiracy theories that he's still alive, because how could he narrate his own documentary or whatever people say? Um, don't you know all footage is recorded live, Andreas? <laughs> <laughs> don't say that to me. Say that to other people. But uh, I mean, that's still huge. I wonder, did, because uh, there was like this whole thing between Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac, did, did Biggie Smalls get this, get a similar treatment at all? No. No, he didn't. Okay. No, there there wasn't any sort of documentary. I don't remember who made this one, but it wasn't anybody he had any affiliation with. It was like some filmmakers who wanted to put this together or something like that. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to check that one out. Uh, I am a big will. Tupac fan, uh, so I feel that that sounds like it's like right up my alley. So fantastic, Rachel. What did you go with with your dog? Okay, so mine is actually a documentary short. Surprise, surprise! I love shorts. And this one is called Bitos, and it's by a filmmaker named Elemaya Tailfeathers. And she's very interesting because she puts a lot of her personal life into her films, but she's also quite political. Sami on her dad's side and Blackfoot on her mom's side. That's how she identifies. And she splits her time between Sápmi, an area in northern Scandinavia, and Vancouver area. So she's an actor and a filmmaker And this movie is a short about the story of how her parents met and their relationship with each other and how they built their family literally across continents. And they were both very interesting people. So there's a lot of going into their backstory and also her relationship, especially with her father. There's some beautiful footage of her and her dad on a road trip through Norway. And she uses many different techniques to tell the story. She has animation, she has archive photos and a bit of footage, and then she has modern day stuff with herself and her family. And it's almost like a contemplative piece. She sort of steps back and observes the way her parents' story played out. Yeah, it's a very peaceful movie to watch. You get a very full picture of this family and how they came together. I believe her parents did eventually split and they go into that a bit. It's been a few years since I've seen the movie. But... It's truly an extraordinary story, and she portrays it very well. Yeah, this looks like it was a staple at that year's um, Imaginative, which is a very yeah. coveted film festival in Canada, so that's pretty cool. I saw it at Skamagovat and uh, the Sami Film Festival, and it was promoted pretty heavily there, too. I haven't seen anything else that she's done. Uh, have, have you? Like, Is, there, is she like pro- predominantly a, a documentary filmmaker, or does she kind of do everything? I think mostly docs. I've only seen a couple of her pieces. She's also acted and she's a curatorial assistant too, or at least she has been. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she's a multi-talented person. And yeah, like just all things to preserve and project film basically in all senses of the word. Yeah. And just, it's really inventive the way she brings forth this story of her parents meeting and it's really fun and also kind of sad and just very reflective. Uh, James, have have you seen uh, Bitos, I think it's pronounced? I have not. I think I'm pronouncing it wrong, too. It's a Sami word, so I, I don't know for sure. And apologies if I did mispronounce it. It's it's only 12 minutes, so I feel like that's something that we could easily squeeze in. It sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. And 
James, you don't have this uh, affiliation, but I guess up here I feel like I'm almost indebted to check out more Canadian stuff just to just to say that I'm I'm doing my part with preserving Canadian cinema. <laughs> but it does sound very interesting. My one, I went with something. This was like over a week ago, before our other recording, I think, or just afterwards that James proposed this idea, and I said, okay, I'm coming up with my list. I don't want to do anything near the top of my list. Let me try and be, you know, use this opportunity to talk about something else. I, I couldn't do it. I, I just I just couldn't do it. So this is a little spoilery. This is going to be ranked really high on my list. But every time I think of documentaries, there's only one that comes to mind. It's not my number one, but it's pretty close. Just a, just a heads up. Whenever I think of documentaries and something that's broken the mold, all I can ever think of is The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer and, uh, and Christine Sin, plus uh, contributions by an anonymous filmmaker, uh, presumably somebody from, from Indonesia. So have either of you seen this one first off? Uh, no, I haven't, but I've heard wonderful things about it. I have not. This is, uh, without question, one of the hardest films I've ever had to watch. It's one of my favorites that I've ever seen. But it's one of the hardest I've ever seen. So the basic premise is, back in the 60s, there was a genocide in Indonesia, which uh, basically anybody who was uh, targeted or blacklisted was slaughtered. And it wasn't seen as an offense or anything like that. So everybody who committed murders got away with it. Nothing ever happened to them. So what happens is uh, Joshua Oppenheimer and company go to Indonesia to find and track down a few people who participated in these killings and ask them to retell their story in the form of various film genres. And these include like fantasy musicals and, you know, the great American Western and epic gangster films. So they can direct their own movies about what they did, the act of killing. And what's insanely disturbing about this film is just how gleeful pretty much everybody involved is, especially because I guess they're under the they're under the apprehension or the misapprehension rather that this documentary is meant to, you know, make them feel great about what they did. Like it's an accomplishment when really it's quite the opposite, but they don't realize that. And Oh my goodness. Um, just to see how proud murderers feel about what they've done in such an un like an unhinged way is one of the, the craziest cinematic experiences I think I've ever seen. And I don't want to spoil it, but um, the ending will haunt me forever because uh, let's just say that not everything falls upon deaf ears in this film. And it's just such an inventive concept that really drives its message across to a very high pitch in nauseation, if that's even a word. Just nauseous the entire time. It's it's one of the most effective films I've ever seen. That sounds like it's well worth a watch. It is. It's worth seeing at least once. To this day, I don't understand how it didn't win Best Documentary at the Oscars. That's when I realized that the Academy Awards don't really have a good documentary sector when they keep getting it wrong almost every single year. But but I digress. Also, his, his follow-up film, The, the Look of Silence, uh, which is it's a sister film. It's a similar topic also didn't win, but I mean, what can you do? So those are some documentary recommendations, but now I guess for the second half, James, do you want to detail these recommendations for documentaries? 
Yeah, so I thought it'd be fun for us to come up with our own pitches for documentaries that we'd like to see that haven't been done yet. That sounds like fun. That That's something that takes this type of uh, topic and really elevates it. So what did you have in mind? Honestly, I had so many different ideas for this, and I didn't know which one to go with. But I think a documentary that would be very well-rounded, I would like a documentary on the history of hip-hop label Definitive Jux Records. Primarily because it's amazing what LP accomplished with that label in such the short amount of time that it was around, because I think it was only around for about 10 years. And I kind of got the idea because he's actually the subject of rapper Open Mike Eagle's second season of his podcast, uh, What Had Happened Was, and he's doing each episode dedicated to a different moment or album in his career. And I thought, we need like a documentary for the label because... After the dissolution of his group company Flow, he thought, you know, he the relationship with the, his group and their former label Rockus Records soured to the point where he was like, okay, I think I can do this better than they can. So that's why he started the label. And it's impressive how in such a short amount of time, like the first string of releases were all released to critical acclaim, which is not easy for an independent label, especially a small independent label to do. But it's like, you know, it, it just hit home run after home run. I mean, you know, right at the beginning, it was... I think the first two full-length releases were Labor Days by Aesop Rock and The Cold Vein by Cannibal Ox, which both released to critical acclaim and made top lists at the end of the year on like every magazine. And then just from then on, it was like his solo album, Mr. Lift's first solo album. And they just, they just had all these great artists and material. And then he was actually detailing how the reason it kind of ended was first of it was the first of all, it was like the decline of physical media sales. So that kind of hurt them. But once they got bigger, they realized they had to actually hire more people and spend more money and just the money wasn't there. So, you know, and then, you know, L himself, he was kind of getting burned out on it because he had a track record of releasing literally an album every five years and he wanted to actually focus on being an artist. So he just thought it was time to close up shop. But, you know, there's so many other artists that kind of like were there for a minute and then not. And, you know, I, I would just like to see a documentary on that. I mean, there's a lot of things I'd like to see about the indie hip hop scene of that time because like the late 90s, early 2000s had this kind of amazing renaissance of independent acts and labels that just kind of took over and carved their own niche out of something that was very, very commercial at the time when it came to hip hop. Yeah, I just I've just always I'd like an entire history, like interviewing everybody and just chronicling the whole. I mean, honestly, I'd like it to be a series because there's just so much to tell because, I mean, 10 years and all these artists and releases, there's bound to be like a million stories. Yeah. The independent hip hop scene is really something, especially because uh, I feel like indie hip hop is something that people appreciate a hell of a lot more now, like on a, on a grand scale when it comes to like, you know, uh, SoundCloud rappers and that sort of a thing. Um, so especially for the younger generation to be able to, you know, find an attachment to it in, in such a way that would be really cool. Well, it's interesting because the decline kind of happened when the line kind of got obscured because it was like, but once the 2010s hit, things got really different with like the decline of sales. So the sales kind of made things weird because you had indie artists like topping the charts because of how, you know, the metric for it was so minimal because people were only sending tens of thousands of records. And then once streaming hit, everyone had a wider audience. I mean, indie hip hop actually is appreciative of the pirating age because thanks to Napster, so many more people got to hear their music than they ever thought they would. I mean, yeah, it was stolen, but you know, it helped, it helped build their reach. Right. Exactly. Uh, th that, that does sound really cool. Um, I, I would definitely watch that, I think. And I'm sure a lot of sure. hip hop hits would. 
Honestly, yeah. my goal is to make it one day. Oh, I mean, sure, why not? Unless somebody hears your idea and takes it now. I'm, I'm looking at yeah, you, uh, whoever's <laughs> listening and thinking of that. But uh, uh, hopefully not. Hopefully uh, you are granted access to that. When it comes to mine, I, I don't care. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What, what's your um, your hypothesis for the ultimate documentary that's yet to be made? Well, I went with music too, but it's slightly different. Have either of you heard of a band called the Rock Bottom Remainders? No. Nope. So finally, a band that I've heard of that you guys haven't. Anyway, so they are (laughs) a band made up of people like Dave Barry, Amy Tan, Stephen King, Matt Groening from The Simpsons, um, Barbara Kingsolver, even Maya Angelou has been an honorary member. And they are a who's who of the top literary talent of the 90s and 2000s and earlier. And they basically decided that they wanted to make music and they didn't care if they were any good. I believe their official model was or motto, was we play music as well as Metallica writes novels. And they play at literary conventions. They're now defunct, but they used to play at literary conventions and book festivals. And um, they raised money for literacy programs and causes like that. So apparently Amy Tan does an amazing These Boots Are Made For Walking. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And so I really want to know more about this because you've got these bright literary talents who are interesting people in their own right and then they all get together and make this band you get all these not so great concert videos there are performances up on youtube and i just think it would be a ton of fun to see all that happen and it would be a good plug for literacy programs too i have never heard of this in my life this is like some some like elite uh secret club society type thing that sounds crazy clearly yeah um stephen king and amy tan have both written pretty extensively about it so it's out there but they they tend to pick up the writers as they go so there's a lot of people who have been involved with it at some point this kind of sounds like when macaulay culkin had that band the pizza underground and oh it was well, just like... no, but that was just stupid <laughs> oh no, no i'm just saying it's like it's just one of those things where it's like people you don't expect to form a band are just like here we're just gonna do this and just <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah obviously that one was stupid but this just sounds i think just the cast of people you just listed was just like i'm sorry wait what yeah exactly what what instruments do they play is is uh is my angela wailing on the guitar like what's going on like i'm not what sure is- if she ever performed i'm just going to look it up super fast but i think they mostly just danced around like amy tan was hitting people with a whip in one like that's the one i remember what? most yeah, that, that was These Boots Are Made For Walking, and so there'd be one guy complaining, no fair, Dave Barry got the cigarette put on his chest. I, I want that this week, and stuff like that. It, uh, it was from uh, This was from her book. <laughs> I think I think I need a documentary just not to find out more, but just for any of this to make sense. Like, I'm so confused yeah. right now. I, and, you know, these are all people, they, they've been in writing careers for a long time. They're all on the older side, and they're just like, we're going to have fun. That That's it. Wow. Um, yeah, and no, they had a they had a professional band like they had a professional band playing the music, and then they would like, and I think a few people played their own instruments, and then they would just perform stuff like that. Yeah, and then uh, apparently Kirk Hammett from Metallica was quoted saying, "Rock bottom remainders, who the hell are they?" <laughs> well, and Matt Groening, people are throwing panties at you. They certainly never do that at my book signings. <laughs> like naturally, it's pretty wild. Okay, so they're called the Rock Bottom Remainders? Yeah, and they have okay. a list of guests as long as your arm. I'm just going to say, it's a bit of a stretch, but Rock Bottom Remainders, Stephen King and his obsession with Maine, it's got to stop. It's got, like, you, you think you think you could sneak one past me, Stephen King? You can't. Rock it's got to stop. Rock Bottom, Boulder, Colorado? 
Oh well, yeah, but like the the main <laughs> and remainders. I know exactly, and the stand took place in Boulder. He, right. he, went, he went back and forth between Maine and Colorado for a bunch of his career. Okay, see, I didn't know that. I just knew about his made-up session. I didn't know about the Colorado one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I yeah, I am waiting for their album still. <laughs> that, oh, uh, this is this is all news to me, so uh, I do apologize for for harping on about it. But uh, wow, okay, uh, <laughs> cool. So um, mine's a little bit more of like a general idea um, as opposed to like a very specific topic. So are either of you familiar with the term, Rachel, you might be uh, the term city symphony. No, no. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll detail one example and Rachel, you'll know this one man with a movie camera. Yes, yes, so, yes. So basically city symphonies, that one's kind of one. It's not exactly, but it's kind of one city symphonies were especially big back in the silent era. Uh, there's some examples of it now are offshoots, um, like Baracus kind of one city symphonies basically for the most part are just capturings of like a city and set to music or some sort of like a soundtrack of sorts. Um, they don't really like educate outside of like, uh, maybe like, you know, political discussions just based on imagery like Baraka and Samsara. It's, uh, it's, you know, kind of sequel, I guess are very political just by just by like looking at what you're seeing as opposed to like being told anything there's no voiceover yeah that sort of stuff so uh i'm thinking that you know we're, we're still getting ones like that because you know samsara is not that old it's like 10 years old i think but a city symphony and i might have to detail some of this a city symphony like a modern day one set to the, the disintegration loops by William Basinski. Are either of you familiar with that musical project? I am. No, and I'm it's not. amazing. So I'll just uh, fill in the listeners at home, but uh, James, like you, as soon as you know what it is, it's like the coolest thing. So William Basinski is an avant-garde musician who specializes in tape loops. And he was being, I, th- I believe the story is he was being kicked out of his place uh you know, in 2001, and he was trying to preserve his his installation loops. Uh, I believe that were showing in uh, in galleries. And while he was recording, because uh, the the like the tape material was so like generic and and like cheap, it would actually break apart as he was recording it. And each time it would loop a little bit more, would flake off. So you can like li- literally over the course of half an hour to an hour, depending on the loop, you can literally hear these loops dying bit by bit. And it's the craziest experience. And part of the idea is because when he finished, I think either part of the project or the entire project, nine 11 had happened and he had um, used the footage from his uh, New York balcony to capture some of what he was seeing. And it's since become like this tribute to like that type of, uh, you know, like the memoriam of, of nine 11. Now, to try and dig that concept a little bit more. And first off, these, this project goes on for a very long time. Like there's like four parts, I think. And in total it's, it's multiple hours. It's fantastic ambient music to like study to, or just to relax with. It's one of my favorite albums ever. Actually. I want to see like a cityscape or like a city symphony of like ancient or urban ruins. So like, you know, abandoned ghettos to like, you know, uh, Chichen Itza, anything where it's like the ruins of civilization, um, either being visited by archaeologists or tourists or just what they're like now, set to music like this, either the actual loops or like if somebody created something similar where it's like just 
hearing and seeing structures of physical and audible things uh, basically just like being destroyed at the same time. Uh, A very similar example would be uh, that experimental project Acacia where it's like nothing but film clips that have deteriorated. So something like that. That was going to be my rec this week. Oh, it's Acacia. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) My my deepest apologies. Okay. Okay, Well, do you want to explain what Acacia is in full then? Great Minds, etc. Um, yeah, so yeah. Decasia is an experimental film that is entirely made out of decaying silent film images. So um, they've, they've either become warped or faded or all kinds of terrible things have happened to them over the years. And so they built this really beautiful narrative out of something that's been almost completely destroyed. It's a really cool film. I love Decasia, and it's not even that long. It's like just over 40 minutes, so it's... It's well worth a watch. And with that in mind, I guess, can we think of three more documentaries just to recommend for our weekly recommendations? They don't have to be documentaries, but I I think to be thematically similar, why not? Especially because, as we said, documentaries don't really get the time of day. So, uh, James, do you have a documentary to, to recommend? Just one off the top of your head? I actually do. It's a documentary called Scratch. It's by filmmaker Doug Prey, and it is a documentary on a DJ and turntable culture. It's really cool. It's got, you know, interviews with all like all sorts of legendary DJs, like, you know, Mixmaster Mike, DJ Cuber, you know, Executioners. But the highlight of it is an interview with DJ Shadow that's done in the basement of a record store that he would frequent. And it's just really fascinating just to hear him talk about records in just this like dark, dingy basement that's just wall to wall, all sorts of records. And he's he's like privileged to be like one of the only people who's allowed down there to shop because it's like a lot of weird backstock or stuff that just isn't really selling or just old stuff that hasn't been you know pulled out in years. And he gets to like go through it and just take his pick. Cool. That that sounds awesome. Uh, you've told me about that one, and I've yet to check it out, so I apologize. Um, speaking of you, my weekly recommendation is one that was in my mind when you brought up the Tupac documentary, um, there's a fairly similar, not identical, but a fairly similar one, which I think is an overlooked documentary. And it might come as a shock to potentially both of you, but certainly to a lot of listeners. Um, I'm a really big fan and aficionado when it comes to like the, the music and life of, uh, one Lisa Left Eye Lopez, uh, you know, former rapper who unfortunately died in a terrible car accident and uh, was a member of TLC, the the R&B group from uh, and uh, formerly uh, New Jack Swing group of the of the nineties and two thousands. And uh, for the longest time, like this is like going on ten years ago at this point, uh, and I think it's still online to watch just anywhere. Um, the documentary the "Last Days of Left Eye," which was intended to be, I've seen that. Isn't it? Isn't it something? I think it's a very underrated documentary. Um, it was. It was supposed to be her way of saying, "Hey, this is my my side of the story," because she had quite a, a tainted reputation at that point, and she wanted to explain her side of the story. And unfortunately, it became something else. And it, it, it's one of those documentaries where it's just so serendipitous, where it's like she's talking about like her her spiritual side and her belief in like you know personal demons and everything before the unfortunate tragedy happens which you basically do see on film and um it's 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 one of those things where documentaries sometimes can just just they're they really are just like life where they take these these directions you don't expect them to whether it results in happy things or in tragedy and 
Yeah, it, it made my documentaries list towards the lower end, but The Last Day of the Left Eye is a very underlooked documentary. All right, well, I'm going to go on the documentary track and continue with film preservation, like Dacasia, and I'm going to talk about Dawson City Frozen Time. It's a documentary about a bunch of films that were discovered in an abandoned swimming pool in Dawson City, Yukon. And because it is in the permafrost, these films were perfectly preserved. Some of them were uh, had been thought to be lost, I believe, beforehand. And the movie's not just a history of these films, but also talks about Dawson City and its heyday. And it gives you a real picture of that time when they were sort of the end of the line for silent movies. And it's a really good look at an era that a lot of people have forgotten and some films that we thought were gone. See, that one I have not seen. That sounds bonkers. That's like right up my alley. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but um, speaking of pretty cool, so uh, Rachel, why don't you give us uh, a bit of, uh, you know, our social media handler, give us a bit of a shout out on, uh, on what's going on on that end. Sure. So we are available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, known as the K-Cut every single time. We're going to start planning some fun things happening there. This month, we are doing our cinematic smorgasbord as usual, airing first week of June. And our film is, it's called Under the Cherry Moon, I believe, right? Yes. And it stars the one and only Prince. So if you guys want to watch along with us, then go and find it. So that was the K-Cut, and now we are going into the L-Cut.